Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. We would like to welcome you back to the new season of Club Book. We will be hosting eight amazing events from September to November 2016 all around the Twin Cities Metro, and we look forward to having you join us. Mystery favorite, Cara Black is the New York Times and USA Today best-selling writer behind the popular Amy LeDuc private investigator series. Set in and around Paris, LeDuc's adventure spanned 15 installments to date. Black boasts an international following with more than 400,000 books in print in eight different languages. She's also a two-time finalist for the Anthony Award, a high honor in the crime fiction genre. In an exciting departure from the norm, Black takes us back in time to explore how a college-aged Amy LeDuc first came to take the reins of her family's detective agency. Her first caseload is an exciting one, involving a hunt for Nazi gold and much more. Booklist raves, finally, we have the prequel we've been craving, a treat for series fans. Bonsoir. Bonsoir. Ça va? Oui? Merci beaucoup, Amelia. She did a wonderful job of pronouncing le duc. <laughs> so we practiced that. So thank you all. It's wonderful to be here. I'm really excited to kick off your club book. I'm really honored to be invited. I come just from uh, BoucherCon, which is a huge mystery, international mystery conference in New Orleans. And there were 1,900 crime fans, crime writers, publishers, and they were all in the bar of the hotel, just to <laughs> let you know. That's where everybody goes, right? So it was really, really great, and what a thrill to come here. Um, so um, the last time I was here, and every time I've actually been in your lovely Twin Cities, it's been March. It's been white. So when I got off the plane, Yesterday, I was like, oh my god, there's greenery here, and it's, it's warm, and thank you for the beautiful, beautiful weather. <laughs> so, um, yes, I'm really honored to be here. So, basically, I just kill people all over Paris, you know? Um, <laughs> um, and um, my stories take place in the different arrondissements of Paris. There's 20 arrondissements, and now I've done 16, so there's not many more left to go, right? Um, I did... <laughs> I did a, a t my series is set in the 1990s, so this book is a departure. And when I did a talk one time, I said, it's the 1990s, you know, there was no Facebook, 
There was no Twitter. Google was on the horizon. In France, they, play, they paid with francs, okay? And Jacques Chirac was doing all the things he was later indicted for, okay? And a young woman raised her hand and said, oh, you write historicals. <laughs> 1990s, so voila. <laughs> um, the story of this book takes place because when I finished Murder on the Champ de Mars, the book previous to this, it was a very um, climactic ending. Things were left, un, un, uh, threads were left untied. Somebody very close to Aimé was hurt, right? And, um, and my editor read the story and she called me and she said, she was crying when she read the ending, you know, and she said, what's going to happen? And I said, I was crying when I wrote it. <laughs> I don't really know where the, you know, what's going to happen if this person will survive. She said, really? I said, really? And she said, perfect. Now is the time to write a prequel. <laughs> and she said, because I've always wanted to know Amy's story, her origin story. We know that she has a detective agency. How did that happen? We know she was in pre-med. What happened? What is her origin story? You know, and I thought, OK. Now I'm going back to when she's 18 or 19 years old. She's in pre-med. What is that like, you know? And it was really wonderful for me to go back and explore where her story came from. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Um, <laughs> um, it's a time of 1989 when we had pagers. Remember those? Big shoulders, big shoulder pads. The B-52s were playing, OK? It is the weekend, the story is set, the weekend that the Berlin Wall fell, November of 1989. And that, we know, shook up Europe. It was sort of the end of the Cold War. And um, so in San Francisco, I had a six-month-old when we had the um, uh, shake-and-bake weather, October of, of 1989. And this is, to me, the, the chill, you know, chill and shake of Europe, a whole new era brought in a new era. So what I would like to do with your permission is read the prologue and then talk more about the story. I will also say that this prologue, I had never written a prologue to any of the 15 books in the series. And my editor, when she read the manuscript, she said, Cara, have you ever done a prologue? I said, no. She goes, well, I think this might work. And you know what? You have permission to write a prologue. <laughs> So this was my chance. Um, so I'm going to start right off with your permission. And this is Paris, November 1989, a Thursday night. Standing outside the Michelin-starred restaurant, a stone's throw from the Champs-Élysées, the old man patted his stomach. The dark glass dome of the Grand Palais loomed ahead over the bare branch trees. To his right, the circular 19th century Teatro Marigny. No, no, if I don't walk home, I'll regret it tomorrow. He waved off his two drunken friends, men he'd known since his childhood in the village, as they laughingly fell into a taxi. Course had followed course, remembering the caviar-dotted lobster in a rich velout sauce. Topped off by Courvoisier brandy, he rubbed his stomach again as he waved goodnight to the departing taxi. His belly was taut with discomfort. He needed to stretch it out before bed. Besides, 
he always enjoyed the walk home to his place in Place François Premier. Even now, after all these years, pride swelled in his chest that he had secured himself an address in Le Triangle d'Or, the Golden Triangle, the most exclusive quartier in Paris. The thrill of living among the mansions and Hotel de Luxe between Avenue Montaigne, Georges V, and the Champs-Élysées never got old to him. He looped his silk scarf tight, took a deep breath of the piercing chill November night, belched. The born farmer in him sensed tonight would bring frost, a crinkled frost, that would melt on the gray cobbles like tears. In the village, it would have been a hoarfrost blanketing the earth like lace. He looked over his shoulder, force of habit, with vigilance that hadn't diminished in 40 years. They were always so careful, so scrupulous about the details, took precautions, yet Bruno's murder had scared them all, made them wonder at the implications. Could it be? But a month passed, nothing. Were they safe? Not totally safe. Not until the final trust, trust document was rubber stamped tomorrow. But that was only a formality. Nothing could go wrong this late in the game. He knew that. They all did. Yet why had he woken up shouting in his sleep last night? Why did Philbert's dentures grind so at dinner? And why did Alain drink a whole bottle of wine himself? Brown leaves gusted against his ankles. On his right, a blurred Arc de Triomphe glowed like a painting on a postage stamp further down the Champs-Élysées. He kept a brisk pace, got his blood flowing, warmed up. He was fit as a fiddle, his doctor said. His heart was like that of a man 20 years younger. A couple passed, huddling together in the cold. Walking under the barren trees by the Grand Palais, he became aware of footsteps behind him. The footsteps stopped when he did. But as he turned at the intersection in front of the zebra crossing, he saw no one. Nerves. The light turned green. He crossed. Midway down the next block, he heard the footsteps again, turned. Who's there? Only a dark hedgerow, shadows cast from trees. Unease prickled the hairs on his neck. He walked faster now, looking for a taxi. Silly. He lived two blocks away, but he never ignored a feeling like this. Each taxi passed with a red light, crowning the roof, occupied. Stupid. Why hadn't he taken the taxi with the others? Kept to their protocol of precautions. His meal, rich in cream, sat in his stomach like a dead weight. Every time he heard the footsteps, he turned and saw no one. Paranoid? Or was he losing his mind? Or was the brandy heightening sensations and dulling his reflexes? Then a taxi with the green light slowed. He waved it down. Thank God. Merci, he said, shutting the taxi's door, breathing heavily. I'm only supposed to stop at the taxi stand, monsieur. Then I'll make it worth your while in appreciation. He gave the address. But that's only two blocks from here. Consider your fare doubled, monsieur. The taxi pulled away from the curb. He asked the driver to close the window. But the driver ignored him and turned toward the river. Not the way home at all. Ahead, street lamps rimmed the quay their globes of light reflecting yellow shimmers on the moving Seine. His heavy insides curdled. You're going the wrong way. 
The taxi accelerated, throwing him against the back of the seat. Stop! He tried the handle, locked. Afraid now, he pounded the plastic partition and tried reaching for the driver's shoulder. The wheels rumbled down a cobblestone ramp. Let me out! He didn't even realize where they were until the taxi stopped. The taxi had lurched to a halt below the Pont des Invalides, nestled in the shadow of its arch support. Mist floated over the Seine, the gurgling water swollen by early November rain. And then the door opened, and before he could defend himself, his arms were pulled behind him. Take my money, just, just take what you want. You know what's going to happen, don't you? said a voice. He gasped, please let me go. Don't you remember the river? Panic flooded him. No, no, you, you must understand. It, it wasn't supposed to happen. We can make it right. Liar. Payback time. A rag was stuffed into his screaming mouth. His bile rose, and all the rich food lodged in his gullet, choking him. You remember, don't you? It's your turn now. He was shoved to the edge of the quay and down into his squat. Through his blinding terror, he saw one of his shoes fall into the water below. The lapping waves from a receding barge and the faint rhythm of faraway car horns masked his cry of pain. Even the lit globes of the sodium lamps faded into the mist on the cloud-blanketed night. How does it feel, the voice hissed. But he couldn't answer as the sour-tasting gag tightened across his mouth. His tied hands gripped and flailed. He couldn't breathe. It wasn't supposed to happen that way. The shot to the back of his head was muffled by the plastic Vichy bottle used as a silencer and the rumble of the traffic overhead. Voila, that's the beginning. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, this, so, so this is the 16th book in the series, and it was a great chance to go back and explore her origins. It also took Aimé outside of Paris, uh, which I had my um, editor's permission to do before she would say, no, 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 you have to stay in Paris. I'm like, okay. Um, and we go to the countryside. We go to the Loire Valley. And the story came about because I live in San Francisco and uh, my neighbor is French. I've known her for years. And when our children were young, she said to me, would you like to come to France with your son and the children can play together? And my, my father has a house in the Loire Valley. And I was thinking, Loire Valley, chateau, right? Chateau. <laughs> well, we, we went over to visit. It was not a chateau, but it was a beautiful farmhouse um, in a village where he grew up. And it was a beautiful countryside, really beautiful. And at the edge of, of his garden, where there was an orchard, and there was a river, a small river. And the kids were out there playing. And he walked around and showed me everything. And he said, um, you know, he told me I grew up in this village. My mother was the school teacher, and it was, I was really sad when I was young because, uh, because my friends couldn't come to class. You know, they couldn't come over the bridge. They lived in the village across the river. And I said, well, why was that? Well, you know, this was, this was the borderline. This was, we were in occupied, we were in Vichy France, free France, the other side of the river, the demarcation line, was occupied France until November 1942 when the Germans just took all over France. So, and I was fascinated. I said, so you grew up? He said, oh yes, we would hear German, I would hear German soldiers talking because it traveled over the river. 
you know, and uh, you know, we, we had to go through a special pass to, to go to the other side. So I was fascinated. He told me also, um, we were one day, we were walking along the river, and he said, this is where I used to go fishing when I was young. And I said, really? And he said, this is where um, we found the body. I said, what do you mean you found the body? When he was a young boy, he came with other men from the village to go fishing, and there was a man from the body, from the village, who had been shot execution style on the back of the head on the riverbank. And I said, was he, you know, was he in the resistance? Was he a collaborator? What did the Germans shoot him? He said, I don't know, I was a young boy. So I was fascinated. That Saturday, we had gone to the market in the village, which is the big event in the town. Everyone comes out and they go to the cafe and people are, you know, with their children and their dogs, buying all their vegetables. And our children, my child was young, he had to be in a car seat. And I remember we bought our vegetables, I'd been watching all these, you know, typical village types. We put them in the trunk, the car seated my son in, and Jacques, his name was Jacques, he turned to me and he said, the man was there. I said, the man was there? The man who shot the man at the river was there. I said, you mean you knew who it was? We have to go. Then we got in the car and we couldn't talk because the kids were in the car. So we're driving back. The next day at lunch, you know, the big Sunday lunch in the French house, we're all eating and I asked Jacques, you know, I said, what is the story about this? And my friend, her husband, and the, her, her brother, and her mother asked what, what I was asking about, and Jacques had never told this story to his family. And so he said, you know, when I was young, this is what I heard, and what I figured out was that, you know, Jacques was young, he would go to bed, and his parents would be talking at night. But Jacques knew who this man was, and this man was still living in the village. The next day, we'd gone to visit a chateau, and we were coming back. And of course, the kids were in the car seat. We're driving back into the village. And there was a big house. It wasn't a chateau, but nice house. Big gate. And Jacques said, that's where he lives. That's where the man who you know. I said, really? And then, of course, the, you know, my son woke up, so we couldn't carry on the conversation. And I said to Jacques, I would really love to know the story. And he said, <clears throat> when we get back to Paris, well, we got back to Paris, I never heard the story. Sadly, Jacques has passed away. But I started thinking about that. If Jacques, as a young boy, had heard, knew the story, this man was still living in the village, and people knew about this, there was a story there. You know, was he a resistance person, a collaborator? And I thought also, I was just, it just really intrigued me to explore the weight of secrets. This was now almost 50 years after the war. People, you know, this person was alive. He'd done very well, obviously. Um, and what was that story? And what is the weight of that after all this time? Especially if the village in some way is, is complicit, if only by silence. So that sort of sparked my, you know, uh, other storyline in this that, that Aimé Le Duc also investigates. And, um, it was really kind of amazing that those kind of things happen. Um, uh, so that's where that story came from. And basically, my books are really about Aimé Le Duc, who's half French, half American, taller and thinner than I am. Uh, she lives on Ile Saint-Louis, because that's where I would like to live. Wait, <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> oui, what? Uh, she has a bichon frisé, you know, who's 
His, very, his name is Miles Davis, or Miles Davis, as they call him. Much better trained than the new puppy I just got. <laughs> um, and uh, her godfather, Morbier, is, you know, has been in her life all the, you know, in all the books. And in this story, we get to meet her father, Jean-Claude, who we've never met, but who has been referred to you know, in all the other books, You're Nodding Your Head. And it was wonderful to write him and to see him and to see the care he had for Aimé. He really wanted her to be, you know, to go to med school, to make something of herself, and not to, you know, deal with the detective agency would be, you know, dangerous, and, right? You always want the best for your child. And, and her, her kind of inner conflict with loving her father, wanting to please him, but having this inner tug to do something else, which is sort of what this story is about. And of course, her godfather, Morbier, who's, you know, kind of crusty and who, you know, always has that, that grease stain on a tie, you know, that, and the big baggy eyes. He's like, what are you doing coming here? You should be studying, you know, what's going on? You know, get back to work. And it's true that in the first year of pre-med in France, they take everyone, I think unlike our country who are very selective, they accept everyone, but the first year is so highly competitive. At um, that time, in, in 89, there was, you had to pass this big, giant exam. And everybody crammed for it. People sabotaged each other. There was, there was a lot of comp competition. And only 15% pass this exam and go into the second year of med school. So it's, it's, that's how they winnow it down. So she's got all that going on. She's been going out with this um, sort of aristocrat. She thinks they're going to Brittany that weekend. But it turns out he's getting engaged to someone else that weekend. And um, so that, and she gets pulled into this story, and we see how she becomes a detective. And we're in the Champs-Élysées, this very chic quartier. You know, um, it's the scene where there was, the, um, in the 80s, nightclubs like Régine's, Le Jet Set, you know. They would go there, and so I was very, very, very lucky to meet a policeman who works in the vice squad, who would tell me about what his job is and what it used to be like in the 80s. And he said, you know, it's not only, it's not only the clubs, it's the after clubs. I said, the after, and the after after clubs. And then there's after 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 club. <laughs> so if you're in the jet set and you want to be up all night with all these models or, you know, you can go. And very, very fascinating to hear his story. Um, and I got to visit him. He, he works in, or he's retired now, he works in a commissariat, which is in an, apart, in an apartment. Like all the commissariats used to be very neighborhood oriented. This is in a beautiful Hausmanian apartment, all wood, stained glass, you know, and you can imagine this is a little police station. And um, he took me out to lunch and, you know, of course when, well actually I took him out to lunch and then I bought some wine and I poured, poured some more. I kept pouring, and he was talking, and he was, it was wonderful. He would tell me about his cases, about the kind of crime, you know, very high-end crime in the, you know, where there's the haute couture, uh, and it was really fascinating, and I'm, I'm very lucky that with a little bit of wine, they love to talk about what they do. <laughs> and while I was there at, at the reception desk, um, there was a man who came in to report a robbery. He was from Gucci. And so the Gucci man had to come with his list of stolen items 
to the little commissariat, you know, so it's still kind of really interesting to see the sort of village, in a way, Cartier, life of the Cartier. So, um, yeah, I, I had so much fun doing research for this story, um, you know. Um, but I'll, I'll go to one thing, because people always ask me, am I French? Was I born in France? Do I have French relatives? And it's all, no, no, no. <laughs> I was born in Chicago. We moved to San Francisco when I was five. Um, and my father, for some reason, was a Francophile. Because he's like, you know, we're, we're just American hybrid. You know, we're, we're nothing really. And he loved French food. At the time, when I was younger, Julia Child, the French chef, she was on our local PBS TV station, live. And you know Julia liked a little vin, huh? right? And she'd drop something, oh, it's okay, and put the chicken in the pot like this, yes? Well, you know, my father asked my mother too slavishly, <laughs> follow those recipes. So my mother was doing Julia Child in her, in her own fashion. Um, and then my father sent me to a French Catholic school it was run as Convent of the Sacred Heart. I don't know if you have them here. And in my day, because it's my age, we had nuns who were French nuns and who wore the habit and the wimple, you know, kind of like the flying nun. And we always said that they had no peripheral vision, you know, because... <laughs> <laughs> and we got away with murder, you know, as convent girls tend to do. Um, but they were, you know, teaching us French. Um, then my uncle came to live with us for a while. My uncle, also from Chicago, had gone to France after World War II to study art on the GI Bill. He just drank a lot of red wine, really. <laughs> but he had stories about Paris in the 50s, and I was young, and I should, should, should have written them down, but you know, I didn't. But there was just this strange sort of thread of francophilia in our family, uh, go, go figure. Um, I was in high school and I went to the library and I had to write a book report for the summer and um, I, I was, there was no YA section when I was growing up, but <laughs> it's really different. So I was looking and I found this book called Promise at Dawn by Romain Guerry, a French author, and it just looked really interesting. It looked kind of grown up, you know, and I thought, well, I could write this and do a book report and it'd be kind of cool, you know, French, it looks French. And, and I read this book, and I was blown away. I mean, the prose, and the way he wrote, and it just inspired me, you know. Everything about this book, I was like, wow, this is like real writing, you know. And so I did the book report, and then I thought, well, I'm going to write him a letter, you know, because <clears throat> you can write fan letters, right? So I wrote, this is when, you know, we wrote letters with stamps on them, you know, snail mail. So I think I addressed it, I don't know, to the publisher in New York, I'm sure, and wrote him a letter and, you know. So at the end of the summer, I remember I went to the mailbox. Inside was a letter addressed to Mademoiselle Black with a French stamp on it. And it was from Monsieur Romain Guerry, a prix Goncourt winning author. He won it twice, but you're only supposed to win it once. Writing to, and he wrote me a note and he hand wrote it, thanking me and all this. And I'm like, oh, you know, I couldn't believe this. But on the back, he had written his return address, 108 Rue du Bac in Paris. So I put it in my treasure box and I sort of took it as a personal invitation, you know, to visit Monsieur Gary when I went to Paris. 
And shamefully, I did. Um, it was, I was about 18 years old. I think I was wearing a flannel shirt and jeans. You know, not what I, anyway. Uh, we were hitchhiking around Europe. It was the time of Europe on $5 a day. Some of you know that. Some of you young people can't believe it, but yes. And uh, we were sleeping under the Pont Neuf, and it was just a different time. And I remember thinking, oh, visit Monsieur Gary. I went to Rue du Bac. I went in the courtyard of this beautiful building, up these, this staircase that was carpet, red carpet, and there were these brass rods, you know, that hold it in place, a stained glass window, and then the apartment door, wood, you know, almost as, almost as high as that, you know, carved, it was gorgeous. I knocked at the door, and, and this man opened, and he had these blue turquoise eyes, and this black hair that was kind of all, all over, and his mustache, incredibly good-looking, and he looked at me and he said, do I know you? And I said, oh, Monsieur Gary, I wrote you a letter, don't you remember? Can you, be can you believe that? Like, this man doesn't get to, and he looked at me and he goes, just a moment, slammed the door in my face, and I thought, this is a total faux pas, you don't go to a pre-goncourt winning, you just did this so wrong, turned around to leave. He opened the door and he said, would you like to go for a coffee? And I said, yeah. <laughs> so we went down Rue du Bac. This is when it was being torn up, you know, building the metro. That's how long ago it was. We walked right down it, just to the corner, in the corner cafe. And we walked inside, and on the zinc counter was an espresso and a cigar waiting, because Monsieur Gary he went every day. This, this was his habit. And the cafe man said, well, what about her? And Monsieur Gary said, well, she will have the same. So I had my first espresso, my first cigar, with this pre-goncourt winning author. And I remember I was like trying to lean on the you know, counter and look cool, trying to puff and not choke or cough, trying to speak and drink. And you know, I mean, it was pretty heady stuff for a young kid. And he was very, very generous, very, very nice. He had just, I think, broken up with his wife, Jean Seberg, the actress. So he was talking about that, and I, you know, I can't remember everything, but I really wish I had asked him more about writing and written things down, and, you know, but it was, I was trying to do too much at once, but that was so generous. And I don't know, somewhere that seed in my head made me think, ah, oh, this is the life of the writer, huh? you come to the cafe. <laughs> But uh, very, very generous man, a wonderful writer. So that sort of got me going. Um, and if I have time to tell another short story, yeah. Um, so um, when um, I went to Paris back in 1984, I uh, went to visit a friend. And she said to me, I want to show you a part of Paris maybe you've never seen. 1984, we went. We got off the bus, it was a beautiful day. I thought, oh, we're gonna go to a cafe, we're gonna have wine. No, 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 no. She said, this way. We walked down a very narrow street. The buildings were soot-stained, they were sagging, 17th century. And even on a hot day, there's this chill from those buildings in Europe that you only get. And then the, it was very small and then narrowed and opened up. And we were in the Place des Vosges, in the Marais, the 17th century you know, brick square with the fountain, arcades, and, and, and there was something about it I felt like I was back home. I don't know, but that was it. 
And my friend said, we're not there yet. We went around and now we were on the Rue de Rosier. Now I know a lot of you know the Marais, you've probably been there recently. It was very different in 1984, before gentrification. We were walking down the street, the Rue de Rosier, there were still delis, there were people wearing yarmulkes, um, you know, Yiddish and Hebrew signs. And she pointed to a window, like second or third floor. She said, this is where my mother lived during the German occupation of Paris. Uh, she was 14 years old. She wore a yellow star. She came home from school one day in 1942, went into the apartment. It was empty. She went down to the concierge. You know, what time are my parents coming home? The concierge said, I don't know, you know. Because in 1942, they didn't know what we, of course, now know happened. She ended up uh, staying at, you know, the concierge fed her that night. She ended up staying there, going to school, coming home, thinking her parents were coming back for two years. Um, what I later found out was that her, the concierge took, everyone had ration coupons, and because my friend's mother was 14, she didn't have coupons. So the concierge's family gave of their coupons which is, I think, a quiet act of heroism, because if you didn't have food, you couldn't live. Shared there, and, and it was very small caloric intake. Her son was actually a French policeman, and when they came back to look, he would steer them in the other direction. And these, I think, are true acts of quiet heroes, heroism no one talked about. <coughs> in 44, she went to the Hotel Lutetia, where many people did, you know, near the Gamont Parnasse, with a sign because people, hundreds of thousands of people, displaced people were coming to Paris or all over Europe, looking for family, trying to find a place to live, made the sign, have you seen my family? Hoping by word of mouth, which is what they did in Japan, remember with the tsunami? You put the photos and you, where, where is someone? You know, how do you find people? So she did this as many, many people. One day, a woman said to her, ah, I saw your sister when she got off the train at Auschwitz. That was it. That's all she ever heard. And I thought about that, and I thought, 14 years old, you know, and then she was to live there, and you know, I just, I, I just, I couldn't imagine that. I mean, I never had to worry about, you know, food on my table, or, and so <coughs> I remember I talked about that with my father when I came home, and my father was this huge reader, and he was like, you know, that's, that's, you know, you should really think about writing about that. And I had no idea how to do it. So fast forward 10 years later, 1994, I had a young child. We went to France. We had one night in Paris. And I um, put my son to bed when I could. He's now taller than me. And I went out of the hotel. And I went down that street in the Marais, the Rue de Rosier. I think I found the building. I don't know. But I looked up there and I thought, what if I had been a young mother in 1942 and my son? What would I have done to put food on his plate? What would I have done for us to survive? What if that came back to haunt me 50 years later, because this was now, you know, 50 years later. I was obsessed. I got off, I came home and I told my dad, and he goes, you are obsessed with this story. You need to write this down. And um, I was, you know, I really, really, really wanted to now because I had a child. And I said, I just don't know how to tell this story. And he goes, oh. He, took his, he went to his library pile, because he went to the library on Saturday, took out seven books. He read a mystery a day. Can you believe this? He was retired. Okay. <laughs> he read a mystery a day, and he goes, you should read this one. I said, Dad, mysteries. 
I haven't read them, you know, since Nancy threw under the covers with a flashlight. And he goes, no, try this one. Uh, I said, what is it? Oh, it's uh, P.D. James, an unsuitable job for a woman. I'm like, okay, you know. I read that book and my eyes went like this. I was like, Nancy Drew grew up, got heels and a gun, you know, and took care of business. <laughs> it's like, here was a woman who was strong and vulnerable, and I'm like, yes. So I started thinking about trying to form this story and make it a mystery, which, you know, I did after three and a half years of writing it. And I loved that structure, you know, because it, it's a structure, a framework to hang a story. My stories are not about violence. It's probably more about the impact of the of violence has on their family and, you know, any kind of murder, any crime. There's, you know, it's like a pebble in a, in a pond. It ripples out. It affects everyone. That's the more interesting thing, how it affects the characters, how people are changed. So that's really what I started to, to explore. And so finally I sold my first book, Murder in the Marais, which incorporated some of that. And I had developed a detective, Amy Leduc, and I sold it to my publisher. And then my editor was on the phone and she goes, oh, okay, well, where's Amy going next? And I said, what? She said, you know, I mean, she met Eve. Now, what about the dog, you know, and, and, and you know, all these people. And, you know, she's, I said, really? She said, you are writing a series, aren't you? I said, of course I am. <laughs> because, you know, she said, well, you've got the character. And wait, what? And she was feeding me ideas where Amy's life would go next, you know. And so that's sort of the way this sort So I, and she said, well, where would you put Amy? And I said, how about Belleville? Now, that was before the triplets of Belleville, okay, and that was nobody. She said, where, Belleville, uh, Belleville, Illinois? I said, no, it's where the Père Lachaise Cemetery is, where Edith Piaf sang on the streets. Okay, okay, sounds good, okay. So then I wrote the next story, and further, a few months later in Émile Duc's life, you know, when everyone recovered from their injuries, and, and so those stories have just sort of organically grown from that, and I've got to explore all the different kind of you know areas of Paris and uh, again I get to meet police and take them out for lunch or dinner buy them wine pour the wine pour the wine and it's great some of them are now retired so they're a little more able to be more free you know about that time um, you know, about their stories With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Kara Black and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from a woman wondering how Black is able to make connections with French people, often strangers, that she uses to do research for her stories. Yeah, it's, you know, in France, I've learned that it's about pe being introduced, you know, knowing someone who will introduce you. And, and it, I'm a kind of a blunt person, and I've sort of learned that's not worked in my favor <laughs> in France. It's more about being indirect. And I ask people, and I've been very lucky. I have friends who I stay with, young Parisians. Well, they're my age now. And, you know, I'll say, you know, I'm really interested in writing about the 16th arrondissement. I don't know it well. I think this, I'm exploring it for a story. And my friend said, well, you know, my brother-in-law 
lived there about a few years ago, but his dentist is in the 60s. Can I introduce you? So through the brother-in-law, I go to meet the dentist who goes, oh, that's fascinating. And you know, my grandmother, she still lives here and she would know about that street during the, it's really, f and so a lot of things have happened like that. Um, because people, I found when, you, when you're sincere, you know, and you really want to know about it, people love to help you and to know their district, their quartier, they want you to, to see it, how it really is. And especially with police, it's about, you know, we want you to get it right. <laughs> no CSI, you know, it's, it's, you know, they're proud of what they do, they want you to, to people to, to, to understand it. So that's, I've kind of been lucky. And I always go there and I go, you know, I'm really, I'm not sure I understand. I'd love to get a feeling, you know, of what it was like, especially in the 90s, or what kind of crime happens there, so. This question asker inquires where Black does most of her writing and what her process looks like. I do research in Paris because it's just too exciting to, to write. I go home to San Francisco and I write there on a laptop. Um, I, um, I have a closet. <laughs> that, you know, it's kind of, I have to do that because I have a puppy now and I have to put him in his crib. Um, but I've always done that. I've sort of worked away. I get up in the morning and I have coffee and I start writing. And for me, it's sort of changed over the years because I was a mother, you know, I was do, you know, at home and I, I was a preschool teacher as well and then I would sub sometimes. So um, I would get up really early and have quiet time, do what I needed to do. And then um, when he got into sports after school, I would also work, you know, watching this basketball game or whatever it was, so, or in the carpool line. Or, so I sort of have a morning and an afternoon. Now when I have a full day ahead of me, it's kind of harder to, to feel no restrictions. But I work in maybe spurts. Now I'll work in the morning, do what I need to do, take, deal with the dog, and then kind of go back and forth. Another audience member asks where the inspiration for the character Renee Friant, Amy Leduc's partner, came from. Uh, Renee Friant is a small person. He is a computer hacker extraordinaire. He's a very natty dresser. You know, he gets his shirts at Charvet and Place Vendôme, handmade shoes from Loeb, L-O-B-B. Um, he came because when I was a preschool teacher, um, I was, uh, was working at the preschool, we were, we, I was on a hiring committee with other teachers to hire a new preschool teacher. And we had several, in San Francisco, and we had several applicants. Everyone had the proper qualifications, the experience, and you know, um, and one of the applicants was a small person. And I remember thinking, she wasn't much taller than some of our four-year-olds. And that's terrible, but I did, I thought that. And I was thinking, you know, with, ki with young kids, it's very physical, you gotta reach and move, and you know, and I was thinking maybe, what if she couldn't do that? What if, and this is shameful, but what if the children laughed at her? What if they wouldn't, you know, respect her? Anyway, I, you know, we all voted, not just me, and we, we chose another candidate. So about two or three months later, I was at our sister preschool, which was downtown, and I heard there was a teacher doing this really great art experiment. And of course, I wanted to go and steal some ideas. So I went early before the meeting and went to watch the art project. And there was, they were in the room, they were all wearing their smocks, they were on a you know, table, they were very engaged, and it was very much Montessori, like you know, they're bringing the materials, they're putting them away, and 
and it was like everything was going great, and I was watching, I was taking notes, and then I was thinking, well, where's the teacher? The teacher was the woman we didn't hire, who was at the table working with the children. And I saw how they respected her, how they were so in, you know, engaged in the project. And I just sat there and I just felt this really, I felt terrible. I felt guilty. I felt that I had been um, looking at her disability, not her ability. And that her children, her, this school, this class was getting so many life lessons that our children wouldn't because I was looking at the exterior. And, um, you know, I think, you know, I've always felt guilty about that, but I'm trying to assuage my guilt through the character of Rene because he is a small person. He's about four foot. Um, you know, when you see him, that's what you see. Um, he's, you know, he's got issues, physical issues, you know, that people do with hip dysplasia and the, and the wet and the damp. He, um, I often think when I'm in a cafe in Paris, you know, Rene couldn't even get on the stool easily, you know. He, he, it would be hard, you know, and every, you know, um, all kinds of issues for him, you know, exist. I mean, he, it's hard to see over cars, you know, cars parked on the street. Of course, he has a special customized Citroën, but I, I think about that, and um, so thank you for asking, but that's where he came from, and, you know, he's always got to deal with all those kind of issues, and he's totally brilliant, you know, so it's kind of hard for Rene. Our next question is what Cara Black is currently reading. I am reading the, the um, Chris Holm. He just won the Anthony Award for Best Novel, and I just grabbed it today. Uh, um, and I forget the title, but he just won the Anthony Award for it. I like to read a lot of um, uh, Europeans, Scandinavian mysteries. Um, I'm also reading Irsa Siguradutor from Iceland. I love her things. I just saw her at Bouchercon. I'm reading uh, some old French authors, crime writers. Um, I every, every year I, I reread Georges Simenon and Spectre Maigret, just because he's such a good writer and I like to get the ambiance, you know. This audience member asks if Black is the one who translates her books into French. Nope. <laughs> nope. Um, as I understand it, when you sell the foreign rights, the foreign publisher, the Spanish or the Italian or, or the French, they hire the translator and they work with it. Um, only one time has a translator um, got in touch with me to ask me, it was a Spanish translator, and she said, she said, I know this is a weird question and I'm asking you in English, but for my Spanish readers, how can I get this bit of slang that would be French slang that would translate to Spanish slang? And I'm like, I can't help you there. <laughs> but I gave her some ideas. But I think the translator's job, a good translator, it'd be very nuanced and keep to the voice. And so I, that, that was, I really respected her for asking. I wish I could have helped her more, but yeah. This fan wonders how much of Amy LeDuc's backstory was either taken from past books or floating around Black's head and how much did Black need to invent for this prequel? It was all very amorphous, you know, because I didn't remember, I didn't know I was writing a series, you know, and I just kept going, and I, I was always thinking that this is Aimee's wound, you know, her mother who, who left, and, and did she abandon them because she feels like her mother abandoned her, and had she done something, you know, always you feel like, did she do something wrong, and the guilt, um, 
and then her father's death in the explosion, so she's got that. Um, I never explored what, what their relationship was like, her mother and father, and a friend of mine, another writer, said, you know, I want to know what that's, how those two very different people got together. I want to know. And I was like, all right. Okay. <laughs> and I really, it forced me to look at how that would have happened, and, and that still tenuous, well, more than tenuous um, thread they had. So, and the rest, I just sort of kind of think, I'm th always thinking of the arc of the growth. You know, where is Amy going to go? What is really going to be solved? Will she ever find out the answer to these secrets? Will this be? So I sort of push those things out and wonder if in this story we'll know more in her arc, you know, of what really happened. So that's, I don't know how clear that was, but I sort of know and um, sort of don't know. The next question is whether Black knows the end of Amy LeDuc's story. No, I thought when a certain person, very close to her, was injured, that that might have been her arc, um, but it wasn't. Oh, I can't tell you, because I'm giving away too much, and I'd have to kill you, because... <laughs> the next... <laughs> I don't want to do that in this beautiful library. Next June is the next book, and we're going to learn a lot more about that, but um, at one point I sort of had an arc, um, but then my editor kept saying, will you write another one, and what's going to happen to her, and I was like, I was so into it. And also in my books, it's not only Aimee's arc, but I get to explore Paris in the 90s, and all the issues, the immigrant issues, the terrorist issues, the things we're seeing now that were there in the 90s. This is not an overnight thing from what I experienced. So all of this was there, you know, France is not a melting pot, it's a salad bowl and it's, um, you know, it's governed by the elite and, you know, it's, and then there's so many ambiguities and so I've gotten to explore social issues in, in my limited understanding. I'm not a reporter, I'm not a journalist, I'm not a historian, but as I get it, like, France is changing, you know, France had, um, I think it was a murder in Clichy. I got to talk about Indochina, right? A huge, a huge impact on France. It was a colony. I mean, then they had people there. I mean, the people, Indo-Chinese spoke French, went to French schools, you know, Saigon. I mean, it was so French. And, and you know, we, I, Cambodia. I went to Cambodia two years ago and I was thinking I could speak French with everyone. And my, they said, no, no, that's a grandfather speaks French, but nobody of this generation does. But, but there is, you know, all these, uh, you know, remnants. And, how is that when you come back to France as an old colonial or, or as a man who's a, a veteran of the Battle of Dien, Dien Bien Phu, you know, that, where they lost, and then we went in there, and you know, how is that? So I think France is also dealing with their colonial legacy, whether it's Indochina, uh, Africa, you know, South Africa, North Africa, uh, Algeria, you know, it's all there. You know, and these people speak French. They were schooled in French, and yet, you know, their names look different. An audience member notes that there were not many women computer scientists in the 90s. Why did Black decide to give Amy those skills? Well, it was when I first started writing and I was trying to come up with this character, I knew she would have to be half French and half American because I can't, you know, I'm not French, I can't tie my scarf the right way, you, you can see this. We know it's genetic, okay. Um, <laughs> couldn't do that, and then I thought, okay, she's going to be a detective. She should do some really, I was thinking she would be an actress, no, that was, 
what if she was, oh yeah, this, this cool kind of computer detective, you know. So 1993, I believe it was uh, San Jose Mercury, a newspaper in, this, in Silicon Valley, when it was a great newspaper this thick. Um, I remember reading an article about a woman who uh, was from Silicon Valley and was, at this time, one of the three um, women who had their own computer forensic agency in the country. One of three. And she, um, so I, I, I found out and I got to interview her. She had moved up to Seattle. And I said, this is so cool what you do and I'd really like to know all about it. She was very generous, but she said it's really boring actually and told me the nitty gritty. And, and I thought that was fascinating because just remember in 93, 94, I mean, I didn't even have a computer. I mean, that was pretty cutting edge, you know. And they were, I'm sorry, there was three computer security companies in the country and one was run by her, a woman. So how cool is that? So I just sort of went from there. And my neighbor, the one I went to France with, her husband worked in, in France in the 90s in um, coding. So I can plumb his memory a lot about, you know, he's, he, he keeps saying, you keep forgetting about dial-up. Renee has to use dial-up. <laughs> yes, okay. And so, but I don't know. I hope I don't make too many mistakes, but I just thought that would be really interesting. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how Black comes up with her stories. Is it real locations or her fictional characters that help drive the narratives? Usually it's, um, you know, if I hear something from a policeman or my friend, a policeman told me an old case um, that, that was the basis of murder in Pigalle. It was based on a real case. And they handed me the file and I'm like, what? How can you hand me this file? I mean, isn't that like illegal? And she goes, oh, he was dead, killed in prison. You can read it. I'm like, <laughs> so it was really fascinating. So sometimes it's that, uh, often it's where Emile Duc would be in her life, where she would go, you know, why she would be involved in the arrondissement. So thank you so much. I really, really am honored that you came. That wraps up our Roseville Public Library event with Cara Black and Ramsey County. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Lucia Munson at 7 p.m. Monday, September 26th at Anoka County's Rum River Library. Lucia Munson is a self-described reluctant farmer and co-owner with her husband Jason of Locally Laid Egg Company, a ranch enterprise in Duluth that supplies pasture-raised eggs. She has written a part memoir, part expose about the couple's experience in the state of the commercial egg industry. Meet Lucia Munson, get your questions answered, and book signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just made too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you 
at the library.